All right, I guess I'm live. Well, greetings to one and all. Uh, this is uh, going to be my English podcast for today, a live stream rather. Uh, not uh, many of my English speakers right now online because we're on the reverse side of the uh, of the ocean, so the timing is uh, is different. <clears throat> so we're kind of ahead of time. But I wanted to do this uh, uh, topic. Wanted to discuss something to get something off my chest. And again, this has to do with um, the way uh, um, Calvinism sometimes works in uh, in certain folks. And what I'm referring to. Well, let me let me start by this. I uh, <clears throat> a week ago, so. I saw a funny meme on Facebook. Somebody posted, uh, uh, you know, kind of funny description uh, differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. And among the points of Calvinism, you know, of course, they listed the total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, the irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints, uh, saints, all of those things. And also, the sixth, the sixth point was. Uh, being a condescending jerk. Uh, and then, you know, follows the description of Arminianism, of what they believe in, and so on. And uh, and people kind of, you know, react, uh, and they laugh, and they put all those smiles. Uh, there's such an, I would, we would say, evil under the sun that we all encounter unpleasant people of Calvinistic persuasion, or sovereign grace, whichever you want to call it. I mean, all... Those of us who believe in in sovereign grace, and I would say that's the only grace that uh, there is, it is absolutely sovereign, absolutely free, predestinating, discriminating, God chooses whom He wills to choose and so forth. We agree on that. I'm talking to a Calvinistic crowd, but do we all know that there are some unpleasant people out there who, uh, who believe it, so that the condescending jerk problem is a frequent thing, rather, you know, uh, oftentimes encountered by, uh, by people of other persuasions, and, and Calvin's themselves are aware of that problem, otherwise they would not be responding with a kind of understanding, yes, kind of, we know what you're talking about, and people would not be agreeing with this, that this, there is such a thing as condescending uh, jerks among Calvinists, unfortunately. But it is one thing to uh, to sort of notice that uh, phenomenon, and uh, quite another, try to build a scriptural foundation or basis for it. Well, let me explain. And this is something that. Uh, it's quite different in the situation where where I live. You know, I'm, I'm a Russian guy. My native tongue, of course, is Russian. I minister to Russian-speaking people in the uh, post-Soviet uh, 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 space, uh, the CIS countries, uh, and uh, some of the Russians who live uh, uh, abroad also uh, sometimes listen to my messages, I suppose. But mainly, it is, you know, a crowd that... Uh, lives in Russia, and we have a different uh, set of problems. Uh, our people tend to be more plagiant and uh, uh, focused upon the behavior and whether whether or not we exhibit the qualities or, you know, the, uh, you know, features, fruit of the Holy Spirit and so on. And uh, John MacArthur, for instance, is pretty big here, and that's why I'm doing a whole series on MacArthur's Lordship Salvation. You know, you know it's that those who do uh, church history know that uh, somehow the eastern part of Christendom uh, has been, for the most part, Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, very much stressing free will and, and the uh, uh, theosis uh, kind of idea, the uh, being uh, conformed and transformed to the image of God is, is an idea very, very much prevalent. So that salvation among Russian-speaking folk and, uh, 
is customarily viewed as the actual transformation. So it's kind of, um, it's more of an inner uh, transformation thing rather than talking the imputation and all those things. That's why even the Russian Orthodox Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, they, they blame the, you know, the Latin Church and the Protestants uh, for being overtly juridical and the understanding of salvation. They say, well, for you guys, it's all imputation and salvation so that uh, your characters never change and, and so on. There's some truth to it. Because in, in my English-speaking segment of, uh, you know, friends and Facebook, I notice that all the time uh, people fight over, you know, doctrine and, uh, and exhibit those, those, you know, proverbial features of Calvinistic jerks, you know, sort of douchebags, and people sometimes get real mean and, uh, and not... Not much charity uh, you you notice among high grace Calvinists, and there are some very very unpleasant individuals whom I personally have had to block because they're so pestilent, so aggressive, so mean, and uh, and some of you know, and, and we we may actually share some names and so forth. I'm not going to be calling any names, but we know that there's such a thing as you know unpleasant Calvinistic people, and so how to account for that? And I I've I've done that in a couple of our previous uh, videos in, in English. That uh, uh, my understanding is that you know what as as to how that comes about. My understanding is that. Uh, we know that salvation is by grace alone. And when God gives us the understanding and uh, that salvation is totally by grace alone, and we begin to proclaim it, and people have done it for centuries, and then some individual comes along and they read a book, a good book on the atonement of Christ, which explains what it is. Or some uh, and some other uh, literature, or they get familiar with the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace, how, however you want to term them, and then they get it, they swallow, they confess it, and then they try to reason uh, with other people, and they meet opposition and so forth. They, they, then they get angry, and sometimes it um, it becomes like a um, partisan sort of behavior we are in the know we understand how it works and so forth you people are in the dark let me teach you explain to you and uh it's sort of a uh it is in a way a form of self-righteousness okay so people who are in the know uh can be condescending and arrogant towards people who are not in the know, and so on. Now, you'll say, well, that's a caricature, you must know the gospel, and so forth. Yes, we most certainly must know the gospel and confess the true gospel. And we must hate all lying ways, all lying schemes, all other gospels, other all schemes of salvation by works. I'm all for it. But what frequently happens is that even among those who kind of profess this high grace, you don't see a whole lot of charity. And uh, and I'm sometimes I, I may have been, you know, when I as I'm thinking about this, that uh, some people say, "Look, this is your own uh, description. You're not uh, not less. You're not a very pleasant." A person, and some, especially my my uh, Russian-speaking audience, will say that I'm a very unpleasant as far as in you know, kind of a condemning attitude because I, you know, I call uh, uh, things as they are. In my understanding, that Armenians is a heresy, and Armenians are heretics, and I say that publicly, openly, and all that. And I call uh, dispensationalism a heretical doctrine, anti-evangelical, anti-Christian when taken to its uh, logical, uh, uh, logical end, 
It is a very anti-Christian anti in Christ, dishonoring, and so forth. So, you know, people think that I am one of those condescending jerks. And maybe I am. But here's the thing. It is one thing to observe something and to rather lament over it and quote another when some people try to find a biblical basis for continuing in their uncharitable state to others. They even go so far, one, some of them, as to say that believing the right set of propositions is the only thing that matters, that counts, and that is manifested. Okay, so the new life, I mean, we all understand that uh, salvation by faith alone does not mean that it is because of your faith, okay? But what some people say is that believing, grasping the correct propositions of the gospel is all actually it takes. And is it is your comprehension in your mind. And when somebody comes along and says, look, there's got to be more to it. You know, there, there are other things, manifestations of the Spirit. And we're going to go to Galatians 5.22 right now. And I want to show it it's just without a shadow of a doubt i mean faith is accompanied by other tenets of the single fruit the fruit is spoken there as singular it is the fruit of the spirit yes faith is the fruit of the spirit fruit of regeneration we believe the gospel yes but some folks uh tend to act as though that's all there is to it so all you got to do is just, you know, formulate and memorize and articulate with precision all of the right propositions about the gospel, okay? Especially as regards the atonement of Christ. That is most certainly definite, that it is limited, that it is efficacious, that it is both sufficient and efficient for the elect only. That it was never intended to save anybody else, for instance. These are truths, and I believe them with my whole heart. But some people just sit in, in, this, in this sort of uh, mode of thinking, and all they produce, all they talk about, is that it is in no way conditioned, and so for anybody who says otherwise, anathema. So they, all they do is they anathematize free willers and Armenians. And Armenians need to be bid down, Sometimes, and, and I, I sit sometimes a lot on this, uh, you know, anti-Armenian uh, drum set. But that's not all there is to it, to Christianity, of course not. Uh, and I have a good friend of mine here, whom I won't mention by name. Maybe I should, but I'll, I'll I just, you know, I, let's talk generalities. It's not so much persons. Who's also a high grace person who believes high grace, uh, you know, in all of the things that are highly predestinating. There's no doubt that the guy believes, you know, absolute double free, a superlapsarian predestination, the definite atonement of Christ, and all of those things. You could say that he is a high grace Calvinist. Now, this guy comes along and says, Look, people, there must be more to it. And even joy and love, there must be other things other than, than confessions of right propositions, meticulously and carefully formulated with a concomitant or the uh, uh, adjacent, I would say, or the, the consequence of it is the refutation of the false doctrine. Okay, you can say, well, yeah, Arminianism, Roman Catholicism, all of those things are, of course, uh, deviations and errors and heresies. Okay, we'll agree on that. But if your Christian walk is just saying the right propositions, okay, and at the same time you can remain in your private communication, in your dealings with other folks on Facebook and otherwise, in social media or outside of social media, 
that you can be a mean person, basically, just a, not a very pleasant guy who uh, shows nothing, really, of the love of Christ and love to the brethren. Uh, that it is quite okay. You know, they say, one, one, one fellow from that camp of high grace, high-minded grace people, da 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 he says that uh, it doesn't have to be uh, any joy. It, uh, it's, it, all those things are good, but uh, they're not necessarily flowing from the work of regeneration. So this gentleman sounds that all it takes is grasping, mental assent to the right set of propositions. The academic knowledge is all you need. And, uh, and he's especially, you know, fighting this idea of dichotomizing, of distinguishing between the heart and mind, the, you know, the liberal and evangelical tendency that you have it in here, but you don't have it in your heart, and therefore, and so forth. And there's a lot of liberal, pietistic nonsense concerning that, that dichotomy. And people, Clarkins especially, you know, Clarkin persuasion, uh, you know, Gordon Clark himself and the late John Robbins re re reacted strongly, said, look, this is nonsense. I mean, the heart is the seat of all thoughts, intentions, and desires in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. It's, it's as the man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So out of the heart proceed murders and all those evil thoughts, as, as Jesus says in, in Mark 7, in other places. So the heart, so there's no uh, uh, strict distinction, or difference rather, between the mind and the heart. Both basically correspond to the whole human being. However, and they're right when they say, look, there's no dichotomy. So belief is the ascent to propositions. I agree. You know, as far as believing the gospel, yes, it is an ascent to historical. And historical faith is a saving faith. It is that, uh, you know, according to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, you know, first verses, and I guess it's particularly verses 3 and 4, where I've delivered to you that, uh, and the brethren, I, you know, remind you of the gospel which you received, which I preached to you, and by which you're also saved if you hold to the word as I preach it to you for, and then he enumerates, and I'm just, I'm not quoting verbatim, I'm just giving you the, the gist of it, that, that Christ, I, I preached to you, a first importance, how that Christ died for you according to scriptures, that was buried and raised according to scriptures. So these things are historical, objective, and you must, and of course, faith is agreeing with those facts, believing them, embracing them, and so forth. So, I agree with those high grace people on that, and the and my friend who's trying to interact with those people and say, "Look, there's got to be more to it," and say, "Yes, we agree. Yes, you've got to believe the gospel, which is a set of correct propositions. We're not fighting against that, but those people." Some of those high grace, uh, sound grace people will say, well, that's all there is to it. Well, that's not all there is to it. They say, well, the love, I mean, joy, you may feel joy, maybe not. It's just, it's just your correct apprehension of those truths. That's all that matters. And, so they, and the implication is that, yes, you can be a jerk. And, and, and they say, well, openly, yes, some of us are jerks, but that's, you know, that's it. It's just, you know, it's, 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 it's all about our legal state status it's all because it's imputation it's by imputation therefore it it doesn't matter how i live i have used a term calvinistic neo-gnosticism in reference to those people and some of my listeners even right now they know who i'm talking about there's a particular crowd of people uh that and to me it's still a pretty good term. It is a Gnosticism. It's a form of attitude or philosophy, you, you might say, which says that 
all you gotta do is really have this correct mental apprehension and ascent to the correct set of propositions, okay? And, and you can be unpleasant, you can be a douche to other people. Well, it's just, look, you know, we're, it's just, uh, we remain sinners and so forth. It is our legal status that is affected. So that they even interpret Romans 6 as referring, strictly speaking, to our legal status before God. It has nothing whatsoever to do with what is taking or should be taking place inside of us and how we act and behave. See, in their uh, attempts to clear the gospel of the sovereign grace of God from all vestiges, all remains of works, they've gone to this other, you know, end of the pole, where they made it into a really an acad academic class. I mean, that's kind of an adult Sunday school. You get uh, all of the right propositions. You're able to parrot them, to formulate them, and you consider and it's only if you're able to, you know, enumerate and list them and correctly set forth. It's verbal precision is very important to these people. Oh, you got to. And if you say somewhere, at some point, something that I may smack of, let's say, uh, almost a kind of universal atonement. Or if you say by the tone of the Christ, if you don't, you know, explicitly say that it's, only for the elect and never for anybody else that suffers. Oh boy, he sounds universalistic. Maybe he's a conditionalist and so forth. So your profession then becomes suspect. And sometimes, yes, of course, I partly agree. I mean, you read stuff by J.C. Ryle sometimes and, and, and Spurgeon himself and other people. Can you say those things? But we forget that our focus... This is not our primary focus, okay? What Spurgeon says and what Jesus said, especially those who are dead right now. They can't give an account of what they did when they wrote, you know, in the 19th century. We have enough sin in ourselves, okay? As I said in the beginning, it is one thing to recognize, yes, some of us Calvinists are unpleasant people. And it's an unfortunate. And we must lament it. Our attitude should be, yeah, yeah, we recognize it, but we don't rejoice, let, let alone try to find scriptural basis for continuing being condescending jerks or douchebags, as some of, some of those people actually are, you know. And they say, well, that's, that's all about it. Well, let's go to uh, very obvious self-evident text, Galatians 5.22 which lists all of those things which all comprise the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it just must be there, folks. You say that uh, earlier on he talks about the uh, deeds or, you know, works of the flesh that are evident and so forth. Idolatry, witchcraft, envyings, murders. Verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, now, this is interesting. That faith is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Faith counts as seven, I guess, in, in the list of, of all those uh, qualities and attitudes or dispositions of the heart. You know, the gentleman that I refer to who said, that, look, joy is not... You know, emotions, all of that stuff. No, it's just the mental sin. That's all there is to it. And, it's, and he even claims somewhere in some of his posts or comments that Paul, the apostle, probably never had that, that joy when he believed. It's just, it was just the mental ascent. So that the joy, well, it's kind of, it's an optional thing. It almost sounds like uh, you may have it, may not ever experience in your entire life. And that's fine as far as, as, far as we're concern. The essential thing is that you believe the right set of propositions. Yes, you might be, you must believe the right set of propositions. And the true child of God, 
one who's being taught of God, who came to Christ and so forth, will have eventually a grasp of the main things that, deep, that we need to believe. Uh, but, first of all, that does not necessarily take place like that. It's not necessarily an instantaneous thing. Otherwise, I've, I've said that. Uh, uh, I'm repeating myself, actually, right now. That in Ephesians 2, in second chapter of uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, why do you think that he repeats twice? It is by grace you'll be saved. By, by grace, not of yourself, lest any man should boast. Paul is writing to a saved group of people, to the saints who have been predestinated, elected, chosen in God. First chapter, I mean, it's all there. It's highly predestinarian doctrine. See, he's writing to those who believed. And if you don't, you know, we don't think that Paul was anything but a champion of grace. I mean, he would not be tolerating any false doctrine, right? He wouldn't be preaching wishy-washy, kind of uncertain, unclear, without any, uh, you know, bone-sticking gospel so that anybody would give uh, assent to, you know, like today sometimes, so well, it's just the apostles... Creed is enough if you if you confess it. So everybody's Christian who can, you know, agree to the Apostles' Creed. Well, the Apostles' Creed, you know, gives some some information, but not enough gospel information. I said, well, this is Paul, the champion of free grace, highly predestinated. He's, he's more Calvinistic than all of us put together. Nevertheless, in chapter two, he reminds them of how they've been saved, it is by grace, and he does it twice. And usually, say, if Scripture says one, once, it's already important for us to heed. If it does it second time, like Jesus says, Amen, Amen, I say, verily, verily, I say unto you, boy, we gotta, we gotta listen. So, Paul repeats it twice, and what do you think uh, he's doing that? Well, apparent, my understanding is that, and it's the most of obvious kind of uh, account, is that, well, because they needed to hear that. And the reason that the Ephesians needed to hear that twice was that probably it wasn't that crystal clear to them. Not that they were works believers, not that they were Armenians or Roman Catholics or anything of the sort, but probably... It wasn't that uh, transparent to them. So he had to say it twice. How, folks, you actually been saved. Okay. And again, this is a foundational epistle. Of course, we have this benefit that we have all of the New Testament literature easily accessible to us so that we can't, of course, excuse our own confusion by saying, well, look, we're still in the first century and we have this oral tradition and the Gospels and some epistles circulating and therefore we have a guy who is sleeping with his father's wife and we don't know what to do about him. So Paul has to address that specifically. Of course, you know, we're, we have a vintage point of having the whole canon completed and therefore we must know better today than to entertain any thoughts that it could have been any otherwise than by grace alone, lest any man should boast. Okay, we have that readily accessible. So I'm not excusing that a person can be kind of confused as to how they're saved. Nevertheless, the point stands that if Paul repeats that twice, uh, writing to a saved bunch of people, and he's not calling them names. He's not saying, look, you guys, potentially, are you Armenian and so forth? He's just, he's addressing them with love, with charity. He's just, again, explaining to them, maybe reminding them what they've heard perhaps once. It doesn't hurt to repeat the same thing. So he's, he's doing that. Well, the point is that uh, Scripture teaches that uh, we must teach it, but we must be patient and must also 
remember that if we talk about the faith as being the uh, outcome, outworking of regeneration, as we must all callous affirm that, regeneration precedes faith, i.e. believing in the right set of gospel propositions. Yes, amen. But it's not the only thing. You must have, it, it must have love, joy, peace, lots of gentleness. How about gentleness, sports fans? Meekness and, the, and then temperance and other things. Well, the point is that they all got to be there. Not, you know, we must be careful here in, in the sense of, so, well, or not. Are you saying that, uh, do you, are, you the, are you that gentle yourself? Do you always have peace? And how much peace? And people start to argue immediately. How much peace is possible? How much charity is? How do we know? Will you get heaven? Do you have enough charity to be assured and so forth? So we get into all those endless arguments. And I've been called a peddler of another gospel as a works gospel and so forth. People be calling me names. Because once I dared to mention, first John, that, excuse me, fellas, I love the right propositions, but it's interesting to me that John, the beloved apostle, who was the closest to Jesus, writes a black and white in his first epistle, that by this we know that we've passed from death to life, that, that we have love to one another. And Jesus, well, basically, let me, I haven't uh, quoted uh, uh, precisely, not, not verbatim. It's First uh, John 3, 14. I mean, it's, it's just as clear as, as day, okay? It says, we know, it says, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. See, there is a causal connection. Tell the truth, according to my own wicked flesh, it would have been easy for me if First John never existed because it testifies against me and my flesh just as much as it does against those people, those condescending people, unpleasant colonists that I'm talking about. I'm no better than they. And when it says... We know that we've passed from death love because we love the brethren. It makes me think, do I actually love the brethren? Of course, when we take it too far or, or in isolation from other texts of Scripture, which say that, well, ye that believe, you have life. You believe the Son, yes, which is, which is basically the correct propositions about Christ, that you have life. So it is faith. But here in John, we must give its due. We must do justice to the text. I mean, the text says that we know that we've passed from death to love because we love the brethren. So the corollary is that if you... And John actually says it explicitly. He says that he loves, but doesn't love his brother. He's a liar. He remains in death. He has no life. And, then, and he also says that how can you say that you love God whom you've never seen... And you hate your brother whom you've sinned. Can that be? Not according to John. Listen, well or not. Boy, you're, 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 you know, what you're saying is very dangerous. Because how much love are you supposed to exhibit to be assured of your salvation? Are you not teaching works assurance? Nah. I'm just. John in 1st John to your attention ladies and gentlemen and you got to deal with it this is what the inspired word of God says if you want to be biblical yes we must kind of kind of balance and harmonize and not make one scripture how's uh, the the Church of England puts it beautifully repugnant we're not to make one verse of scripture repugnant to other places yes I'm all for it. It all must be harmonious, but Scripture cannot be broken. And this witness of 1 John 3, 14 stands. We know 
But we pass from there to love because we love the brethren. So I'd say, and I've said that before, don't take that to that area of quantitative uh, differences. How much love you're supposed to exhibit, Renard, that you, uh, that you can pass the test and so that we can yourself, consider yourself uh, saved. How much love? How, look, let's not talk like that. Let's not be condescending jerks. I'm trying to fight this attitude. Let's be serious. If John says it, all I'm saying that this love to the brethren must be there. Period. If Jesus himself says, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. If you have love among yourselves, I talk in you know, modern English. So it must be there. And it's not just your confession, your gospel defense, all of your beautiful articles and so forth. If you have love, it's a well. When we condemn Armenians and, you know, all those free will schemes and so forth, we're actually, this is a manifestation of love. Well, maybe, yes. And sometimes it is. I'm a little pastor. I have, I have a flock. I have people that I care about and so forth. Yes. It is, it is that fervor and zeal for God's house sometimes to come out and say, look, this gospel is a false gospel, okay? And it, and it poisons Christ's sheep. And I can't tolerate it because it leads people astray. This is a fearful thing. If we're set watchmen over God's house, it is, of course, our duty to guard off and to beat off with this, uh, you know, rod of uh, rod of under shepherds, the the beasts who are around, all those new perspectives on Paul, all those all of those hairs, the feral vision, goodness sake, I mean, which is very aggressive and prevalent here, and I'm I'm always finding myself a lonely voice against that major heresy, which disguises itself out in the name of reformed theology. It's openly taught, at least in one school in St. Petersburg. It's being spreading in Ukraine and so forth. And I said, look, I said, federal vision is a heresy. It's conditionalism. It's sacramentalism and so forth. And people get mad at me and say, well, look, he's a douche uh, for, for saying that. So I have that zeal, okay? I have a lot of that, that zeal. But what I'm saying is that it is not the only thing. If it is a manifestation of the love to the brethren... That going forth and that uh, warding out the false doctrine, according to scriptures, it is only one of those things that uh, must be present. Yes, you have zeal, but even if you have all the zeal, all of the knowledge, all of the faith, Paul says, and you have not charity, you're just a sound and brass, the clinging symbol. Symbol, you know, you just uh, you make noises. You must have love. You must lay down your life for the sheep as Christ did. You must show your long-suffering and patience and meekness. And you must also exhibit joy. You know, this friend of mine who writes articles opposing this neo-gnostic Calvinist, he says that joy is essential. I mean, if you don't... It, it, again, it, it all comes back to unbelief, essentially. Yes, it all kind of, it's, it's rooted in unbelief. There's something wrong with your orthodoxy, with perceived. You know, they, they respond, so look, there's no such thing as dead orthodoxy. If it's orthodoxy, it's a living thing. Yes, and I agree. But there's such a thing as something that appears very orthodox, and yet it is dead in so far as it's lacking. Gentlemen who said that Paul may not have had joy, he just uh, ascended to the truth. Look, if Paul, if Paul didn't have joy, or if joy was kind of an uh, kind of optional, peripheral thing, maybe I'll have it or maybe not, and so forth, then he didn't have this spirit because that's what the apostle says clearly. The fruit 
of the Spirit, love, joy, gentleness. So if Paul didn't have it, the only logical implication is that he didn't have the Spirit. And if he didn't have the Spirit, he's not of his. And the logical conclusion is that he wasn't an apostle, so he was a false. So the point is, and, and the Calvinism is basically, it's, it's Pauline theology. It's Paul's propositions, because Paul is the champion. So all I'm saying is that if Paul didn't have it, he was a false prophet, a false apostle, who didn't have the fruit of the Spirit. And therefore, your high predestinated doctrine is built upon the writings of a non-converted person. This is, this is what, following from, you know, those assertions that joy is kind of, it's, it's optional, and Paul may not have had it, and some people just, you know, it's just the, all it takes for you is to ascend, and so on. And um, one other remark before I finish. People rightly, of course, say that uh, as regards the greatest commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and mind and strength and understanding that they say, well, the enumeration, the listing of those things does not necessarily mean that the heart and mind and soul, that those are different things altogether. Rather, the meaning is that you are to love the Lord thy God with all of your being. And that is the only, and of course that's, I mean, how can anybody argue against that? Yes, that's precisely what Christ is saying. That you got to love him with all of the faculties that he himself is endowed you with. All that you have with all of your volition, your intentions, your feelings and emotions as well. Where to love God and our neighbor as ourselves, okay? Those are the two greatest commandments. And while it does not suggest this dichotomy, the scriptural dichotomy between mind and heart, it does mean that it, it's got to go beyond the ability to correctly articulate gospel propositions. That's what some people do all the time. Our sermon number 847 of why Arminianism, Arminianism is another gospel. And there is no end inside when we're going to finish. Because that's, boy, that's our ministry and so forth. And, and maybe there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of good in exposing Arminianism as a false gospel. But if that is... All you ever do. And there's not much else. Not much practical charity. Now, John himself, here in that same third chapter, he says that let us love with, uh, not with tongue. Okay, I just says that, uh, oh boy. Hereby, yes. I lost that. I lost that verse. And boy, I'm so worked up. But let, he, he does. He does say somewhere. I can't even find that, that that verse right now. He says that let us love not just in word, but in truth and in deed. Okay, this is what John says. He says, well, when we produce our materials against uh, contra Arminianism and conditionalism, that is. Loving in truth. Okay, fair enough. Okay, part of it, part of the deal, yes. Writing against heresies, but it's not the whole of it. He also talks in deed. So love will manifest. I mean, imagine you get married. Okay, you marry a wife, you marry a gal, and then all you do to your wife, you articulate to her the correct propositions about her as an image of Christ's bride, and this is a mystery of Christ in his church, and so forth. Thou art beautiful, and you can 
actually even quote to her the entire Song of Songs as descriptive of the spiritual beauty which is pictured with the images of the carnal beauty which you, my beloved, are, you know, are possessing and so forth. Can you imagine a person talking to his wife like that, even saying high-floating things, you know, beautiful things, and never actually touching, embracing, hugging, and, and the rest of it, your wife? Of course not. But this is what these people say, basically. It's the, your, your relationship to God and to your neighbor is basically just loving with your lips. It's not even your mind, because if, if your mind is involved, and if you're honest about it, you read stuff like 1 John. I throw a challenge, gauntlet if you will, to all of those high grace predestinarian Gnostics saying that 1 John is a bomb, is a gigantic bomb against all of you. How can you live and sleep easy reading 1 John, okay, and, and being, uh, uh, remaining kind of, you know, un unpleasant, uncharitable people and have any assurance that you're okay, that you're everlastingly saved. So enough of that. I, I'm going to finish this rant. I just felt like I needed to step in and help this brother of mine who's being under severe attacking from those, uh, uh, you know, from that Southern Grace uh, camp who's, who's saying, oh boy, you're mixing, uh, you know, the heart and head, you're distinguishing, you're, uh, are you allowing for free willers to be saved? And so it's just, they're biting him, they're tearing him apart. And the only thing that he's saying is that, look, there must be love and people who get to sometimes it can be a process so that it, in the beginning a person may be slightly confused. God will teach him. We must be patient. Of course we don't receive into our fellowship people who openly profess Arminianism. Of course not. And, he's, and this, this guy is not suggesting that we should. But all he's saying this is that we must be charitable in what matters is am necessarily sprawl or you know it, like I've, I've been bit severely say look you and the only thing I did two years ago sprawl died and then people started oh he most surely went to hell because he proved our means he means are saved by inconsistency and so forth. If Sproul said that, that must mean that he was certainly unconverted, unregenerate, and so forth. So he died and he went. At that point, and I went kind of emotional. To me, it, the whole thing appeared ugly. It's kind of a bunch of vultures arguing over his dead, still warm body. I said, look, he said many stupid things. And I have many problems with, with RC, with, with things that he said and so forth. I criticize him openly, but I'm not going to join this course and say, and, and, and say with this kind of sickly rejoicing. Yeah, he's surely way to hell. It's just, look, it ain't my business. It ain't my prerogative to decide and so forth. He said some stupid things. Don't we ever say stupid or sinful things? No mercy, folks. It really, it, 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 it becomes such a caricature of what true grace-believing people should be. If we rejoice over over uh, pronouncing this, you know, uh, condemnation, reviling judgment, 
Oh, they, yeah, they certainly went to hell because he, you know, he was a heretic and so forth. Now they say, well, if, so the logic is clear, if I allow Sprawl to be saved, maybe it's a brand plucked out of fire, if I give a benefit of a doubt to, to the late R.C. Sprawl, must surely mean that I myself a tolerant, and a tolerant is the worst sort of sin. I mean, if you, so, I, if I die today, They'll say, they'll say thing of me. They'll say, he surely, how do we know that he went to hell? Because he didn't condemn Sprawl when he died. And Sprawl was, uh, you know, leaning. He was kind of soft on Arminius. And this guy was soft on Sprawl. Therefore, he certainly went to hell. That's what they would, would say. Now, whether or not this attitude is this charity, which must be among us people, I'll let you to decide, guys. I mean, I know that I'm, I'm drawing some heat probably already coming my way, even though I've been blocked by some folks and I've blocked some others, but nevertheless, they'll probably elicit some response and they'll probably write articles. Okay, is rational as always. He's trying to defend an indefensible thing. And I'll be condemned in the end. For, for certain. But that's okay. I can live with that. My, uh, <clears throat> my intention is, first of all, to speak the truth as it is in Scripture. Whether or not it's convenient for us, I care not whether or not I'm pleasing certain folks and drawing some hate for them. Well, let it be. Let it come. We're to speak the truth in love. And I hope, hope we all grow in understanding, but in our love to God, who's redeemed us, and to one another, and to all men, actually, because we all, you know, deserve the worst from God. And if we've been shown mercy, maybe we ought to be shown mercy to others as well.